This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the history of mining that has occurred in this region and the impacts it's had on rivers. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. really difficult to tell what the rivers were like before mining because it's not like they're dumping toxic chemicals out of a barrel you know into the river it's this natural process that's just being intensified today on science moab we're speaking with jonathan thompson Jonathan is an author and journalist who's covered diverse topics relevant to the American West. In his book, River of Lost Souls, The Science, Politics, and Greed Behind the Gold King Mine Disaster, Jonathan explores the infamous Gold King Mine spill that released large amounts of acid mine waste into the Animas and San Juan Rivers. Jonathan came down to Moab as part of the Center for Colorado River Studies' River Science Moab series. And here we speak to him about the mining history within the San Juan Mountains and its positive and negative impacts on communities and ecosystems. We cover how the Gold King Mine spill is only a small part of a larger picture around extractive industry in the Four Corners. We start our interview with Jonathan talking about growing up along the Animas River. The Animas River it was only probably a block away from our house that we grew up in. So as far as a playground goes, it's pretty amazing. It's kind of dangerous, but we never drowned miraculously. It's an amazing sort of thing because it changes so much from place to place. You know, there would be different places when we were growing up where we would go play for and do things for different reasons. We'd fish in certain places. There would be other places where we might float on logs down part of the river. And there was another place where there was a big rock that was slippery and you could slide down it into the river. And it went right through the town. On each side of it, there were parks or there were houses. But there was that no man's land that went between the river and the houses where maybe it was private, maybe not. But we could go in there and we did go in there. And so it was, you know, it was kind of our place. Do you remember when you first became aware that the Animas River and so many of the rivers in southwestern Colorado coming out of the San Juan Mountains had lots of heavy metals in it? When I was pretty young, I know when I was five, for sure, there was a giant tailings pond breach up in Silverton, and it turned the river a horrible color for several days. And there were other smaller ones after that. At one point, a lake burst through a mine and turned the river black. And there were also like smaller tailings pond breaches. So I, I saw those and I knew about it. I don't know that I knew that in between those that the river was also had heavy metals in it until quite a bit later, actually. I wasn't really aware of the fact that there's just heavy metals in these rivers. I was wondering if you could give a pre-mining picture of these rivers in southwestern Colorado. Silverton is in, or it's at the very edge of what's called the Silverton Caldera, which was this big collapsed magma dome. 
And that is, it's super mineralized. The minerals don't just run in veins like they do in other places. They're everywhere. So that's why if you're driving through the San Juan Mountains on Red Mountain Pass, there's Red Mountains because it's got a lot of iron hydroxide in the rock. So that stuff naturally just dissolves and runs into the, into the rivers. So you do get like Cement Creek, which runs right through the center of the caldera, which is where the Gold King Mine spilled into first. That most likely never supported life except for extremophiles, which enjoy that kind of conditions, but never really bugs or fish. Mineral Creek, which is the other one that kind of comes from one side of the caldera, is the same thing. It's not as irony as Cement Creek, so it's not as orange, but it's got this kind of milky color usually, which is aluminum. So it probably did not support fish either. There's a lot of tributaries, and there's the Animus River itself above Silverton and above the mining areas where you certainly could have supported fish naturally. We don't know for sure whether there were fish there or not before mining came because nobody really did any kind of survey of fish and tried to really look for them. There were some in pretty high places in the San Juans that people saw, but we don't know about those places in particular. But definitely uh, there were fish downstream. There were native fish down in the Animus River, down by Durango. There were quite a bit. One of the other hard things, though, about trying to figure out what the baseline looked like or the pre-mining snapshot of the thing is that starting in about the 1880s, they started stocking fish all over the place. They would pack them up in saddlebags on their horses and dump them in so that they could get a fish population going. And so those were non-native fish usually. And so then they may have crowded out the native ones. Ichthyologists came and did surveys after that, but at that point, it was hard to tell what was native and what was there before and what was not there. Within the creeks, like Cement Creek, where, you know, you're not seeing much except for extremophiles, what's the mechanism keeping higher levels of life out of these rivers? Like, what about these heavy metals are making life more difficult? And the basic thing that happens in mining country is called acid rock drainage. And that's where you've got water and oxygen. They react with iron pyrite, which is a sulfide bearing rock. And the sulfides react with those things. And eventually you get sulfuric acid. Water becomes acidic. And then it dissolves the metals in the rocks. And so those metals are usually toxic to fish. So in varying degrees, iron is actually one of the least toxic, but it's one of the most visible. It's very orange, but zinc and uh, lead, of course, and mercury is, is toxic. And, and so you get all kinds of metals that get in there naturally in some places. But when you come in with mining, you dig into the mountain and you provide a, an easier passage for the groundwater to go through. So that sort of hijacks the hydrology. And then you also introduce oxygen into the mountain in a very mineralized area. And so then you get that reaction takes place on a larger scale and it takes place more quickly. And then the extremophile bacteria start eating this stuff because they love it. And that actually just speeds it all up and increases the magnitude of it. So you've got this natural process that mining exacerbates, which is another reason that it's really difficult to tell what the rivers were like before mining, because it's not like they're dumping toxic chemicals out of a barrel, you know, into the river. It's this natural process that's just being intensified. I'm really interested in how mining is really working and interacting with water to increase these acid mine wastes. I was wondering if you could just, you gave a good explanation, but a little bit more of an explanation. 
before you have mining, so let's say, you know, you have a mountain and you've got snow melt and um, the rock in most mining areas is pretty fractured. So there's all these fractures and cracks that the groundwater, that the melting snow or the rain finds and starts trickling through the mountain. And it's usually anaerobic. So there's no oxygen in there. So that right there prevents that reaction from taking place. So you, you don't end up with acidic water usually. And so the water comes out relatively clean. When you drill straight into the mountain, basically a tunnel, the technical term is a drift, you introduce oxygen and you also provide a passageway for the water that happens to be where the most of the metals are because that's where you're mining. You're following the vein, which is where the metals are richer. You kind of have these two things coming together that really accentuate what might have happened naturally. And then you've got all this water running through there and is coming out in one place rather than coming out dispersed in various springs and tiny little amounts is coming out all in one place. And it's usually a lot of, you know, it can be a lot of water. The Gold King mine is like anywhere from 250 to 500 gallons per minute is coming out. The Sunnyside mine, which was the last mine to run in Silverton, was 1,600 to 2,000 gallons per minute. Of water just just nope. coming out of. It's just coming out. It's just draining out. It's like a creek coming out of the mountainside. If you dig one hole in, you're going to hijack some water. But these mines are made up of underground workings that can stretch for 10, 12, 15 miles of underground workings. So they're kind of like acid mine drainage factories. When and how was it first acknowledged that human mining was really increasing these heavy metal loads? In 1556, this guy, Georges Agricola, he wrote this book called De Re Metallica. And he had a whole chapter basically on the impacts to the environment from mining. And it was basically the first book that was about mining as a science or as kind of a craft. So he talked about how when you wash the ores, it poisons the water and kills the fish. And how in Roman times, they wouldn't allow mining near the fields because that would destroy the fields and the crops. And so they knew, certainly from way back then, you know, maybe they didn't know exactly what the mechanism was, but they certainly knew that it was harmful. So by the time uh, the mining started in the, in Colorado in the 1850s to the 1880s, certainly they understood what was going on pretty well. When did, did conversations around these impacts start happening in the San Juans? They started happening not too long after mining started, really. Early mining was what's known as high-grade mining, and that's where there's a few individuals and they're digging in to the vein and they're pulling out rocks where you can see the gold in it and stuff like that. Then they take that and they throw it in their saddlebags and they take it to the smelter and they can cook the metals directly out of the rock. Then they got into the point where mining became much larger scale and they wanted to go after lower grade ores where you can't even see the metal in the rock. You know, they know it's there, but it's so dispersed that you can't see it. So in those cases, you have to have large scale milling operations which is where they just crush the rock and then they use gravity and mechanical means and chemical means to separate the metals out of the, the rest of it, which is called tailings. So the waste product is tailings. And, you know, there might be in any ton of ore, maybe anywhere from 10 to 25% of it is actual metals. The rest is tailings. So if you got a ton of ore, you got a lot of tailings left over and that's a waste product. At first, they would just dump that straight into the rivers. Right away, once they started doing that in a large scale, people downstream started complaining. 
in Colorado, I would say that there was a very large movement to stop dumping of tailings by the mine owners. And that was mostly farmers that led that. They also understood the chemical reaction, what was going on. And they understood that when this stuff went onto their fields, it wasn't good for it. But it was also municipalities because back then, of course, everybody was getting all their drinking water and any other water that they used out of the river. There was also anglers, so people who valued fish for sustenance, but also as recreation. I mean, there was actually people complaining, saying, oh, the mine companies are ruining our opportunities to create a recreation economy, essentially. Back in the early 1900s, you had this kind of stuff going on, which we think of as that being something kind of new, but it was fairly big back then, too. One other group was, I think that there was a group that was kind of environmentalists. They weren't fishing. They didn't have any sort of pragmatic or or a self-interest in the river being clean, but they just valued a clean river and they valued wildlife and they valued these sorts of things. And so they were also fighting for it. And so when did the tailings stop getting put directly into the river? It took a long time and many, many lawsuits. Downstream farmers, they didn't have any sort of regulatory framework that they could get relief from. There was no EPA, there was no Clean Water Act, no laws that were stopping the upstream people from dumping. And so they would be forced to go to court and sue the miners. And in most cases that I've seen, the downstream people actually won the cases. The judges ruled against the miners. But what that meant was they just said, okay, the mining company, pay the farmer 100 bucks for his troubles, and you can go ahead and keep on dumping. Because the mining industry would come back and say, hey, if you make us clean up our act, we're going out of business. And you guys are all screwed then because this is the foundation of the state's economy in Colorado. And and really, it was the foundation of the economy in much of the West. So oftentimes, the judge bought that argument. You can pay him a little bit, but we're not going to make you clean up your mess. And that lasted until 1935 in Colorado, at least, when the Colorado Supreme Court finally ruled and said, you have to start containing your tailings. And then that kind of rippled across the rest of the West. And so it really improved water quality. When you talk about downstreamers and the effects that all of this upstream activity was having, how far downstream are you talking? It depends on what you're talking about, but definitely something like the Gold King Mine spill, for example. I mean, that's a good thing to look at. We know exactly how far that went. Basically, for about 100 miles downstream from the mine, essentially the length of the Animas River to where it runs into the San Juan River, there was pretty visible impacts. I mean, you could see it. It was yellow. Then it hit the San Juan River, which is a bigger river, and it was diluted somewhat at that point, in part because an upstream reservoir, Navajo Reservoir, the Bureau of Reclamation opened up the dam in order to help dilute it. But You could still see it at first. Definitely as it went across New Mexico, you could still see it, and there was still iron and there were still metals in there. By the time it got to Utah, though, it was kind of indistinguishable from just the normal silt. The San Juan River is a very dirty, silty river normally, and so they they couldn't really pick it out, the leading edge of the plume. Uh, This summer, I believe, or soon, USGS is going to do core samples of the silt in the San Juan River where the San Juan River runs into Lake Powell. And they're going to do core samples of that. And I bet they'll be able to see sort of an orange, thin kind of orange line where that happened. I was wondering if you could explain what happened with the Gold King spill and and why the spill occurred. And then also just talk about where it, it falls within the other kinds of spills and seepages and acid mine waste that's entering these river systems. 
Yeah, so the Gold King mine was was sort it's sort of an abandoned mine, but not really. Technically, it's not an abandoned mine because somebody owned it and somebody wanted to mine it eventually. It was last mined really in 1924. And since then, it just sat there. And one of the things about it is that it was dry. There was no drainage from it. The reason was is because another mine, a bigger mine was down below it and that that was draining the mountain kind of like a bathtub. And so it was bypassing the Gold King and going, all the water was going down there. It was dry until that mine that was below it, the Sunnyside mine, until in 1996, 2002, and 2003, they put in three bulkheads or big plugs into the mine. And that's the mine that was draining 1,600 to 2,000 gallons per minute of water. So they plugged it up and the water started backing up behind it. After a while, then a matter of months, really, the Gold King mine was no longer dry. It was starting to ooze out pretty nasty water with a pH of about 2.5. So fairly acidic and definitely loaded with quite a bit of metals. Eventually, they called in the EPA to look at it. And they did. And at some point along the way, the ceiling of the mine collapsed. And it created sort of a dam inside that sort of backed up a bunch of water. Over the years, as the EPA was watching it, there was more collapse and more sloughing and stuff. By the time August of 2015 came around, it was all covered up with dirt, the mine was, and no water really was coming out. The EPA had been working on a different mine that was nearby that had also started leaking. And so they were working on that and they had finished it. And the summer wasn't over yet. And they said, well, let's go look at the Gold King mine and see maybe if if we can figure out what to do next. For some reason, they started digging into the mine with a, an excavator. So inevitably, it broke through just a little bit to all this water that was backed up inside the mine. And pretty soon that stuff came bursting out. Turns out it was three million gallons of sediment that had dissolved and come through in the drainage and then got all stuck in there and that came blasting out down into the creek and ultimately into the animus river and all the way down to lake powell essentially it attracted a huge amount of attention frankly surprised me what ended up being communicated i think is that there was this pristine river and that this stuff was dumped into it there was this toxic waste spill which isn't quite accurate because definitely the river wasn't pristine This mine, the Gold King mine, mines around it had been draining for a long time, and the river had been impaired as a result. Wild fish definitely have a hard time reproducing as far down as Durango, which is 50 miles below where all this mining is taking place. And as you go upstream from Durango, it gets worse and worse, and the fish density just decreases more and more as you go upstream, and and same with diversity. So it wasn't pristine. You know, it wasn't the first time it had happened In a lot of ways, that's really what spurred me to write the book is that I felt like the rest of that context needed to be put in place and gotten out there. And not just the context of the mining and the pollution, but sort of the human history also, the good things that mining did for the culture and that sort of thing and the economy. I was wondering if you could go a little bit more into the the effects that these heavy metals have on these different systems and if we're ever seeing evidence of them affecting human communities and also how is it studied? How are scientists asking these questions and monitoring what's going on in these rivers? They affect uh, the aquatic life in various ways. So the first thing to think about is the acidity. Most aquatic life can't live in, in a pH below like five. And so a lot of these streams like Cement Creek that runs through Silverton, it's 3.5. The acidity alone there 
makes it uninhabitable. But the other thing that makes it uninhabitable is the fact that there you've got this a huge amount of iron in the water. And what the iron does is, A, some of it is dissolved, but some of it's just suspended, very fine suspended stuff. And that gets caught in gills of fish or it cuts off light to the the plants and that sort of thing. But it also creates something called ferrocrete, or they also call it yellow boy, which is basically like cement, this orange cement that coats the bottom of a stream. And so Cement Creek, you can't see individual rocks, really. They're all kind of cemented together by this stuff, which makes it impossible for like bugs to lay eggs in the gravel and that kind of thing. So there's no gravel on the bottom. So that's like an extreme example. Once you get further downstream, you've got these metals like zinc. It's toxic to fish. It can cut up gills and it can get stuck in gills. And it's also... I think zinc bioaccumulates in fish as well. Mercury, of course, bioaccumulates and it's a neurotoxins and it accumulates as you go up the food chain. There's not much mercury, luckily, in the San Juan Mountains naturally occurring, so there's not much in the water. And the way they're studying it, there's a lot of different kind of avenues into it. There are regular surveys of the just of bugs. So these guys go down and they just go and count bugs and try to figure out which species there are. There's an organization called the Mountain Studies Institute in Durango. They have a biologist who goes and does that. And so that's a great way to kind of gauge the river's health. They also count fish. So they go along and they, you know, they electroshock the fish and they come up and float to the top and they count them. And then they do other kinds of things. Like when the Gold King mine spill happened, they, in Durango, before the plume reached Durango, they put cages full of fish into the river and then let the thing run through it. When it was all gone, they looked again, and it turns out all the fish actually lived. So there was not a mass fish kill from that event. Is there a likelihood that something like this is going to happen again? There will be blowout. That's what this is called. It's not that uncommon because these old mines, especially abandoned mines, they collapse, and so you get this buildup of water, and usually it happens on on its own. It happens in the springtime when things are melting and thawing and, and contracting. So, yeah, it's going to happen again somewhere because there are these draining mines and they're being addressed, but it's it's a very slow process and it's difficult to address them. And there's there's not a very clean solution in most cases. What are some of the cleanup things that are going on? Really, for acid mine drainage, for a big acid mine drainage problem, the only real solution is to treat the water forever. So what they do is the water comes out of the mine They put it into ponds and they throw in a bunch of calcium carbonate, which raises the pH. And so all the metals drop out of solution and mix with the calcium carbonate. For smaller drainages, they'll create a creek like a waterfall that goes over a bunch of uh, limestone. And that lowers the acidity and helps some of the stuff just fall out of solution naturally. Another one, ideally, is to cut off the water before it gets into the mine from the outside. Other ways that they address it are to clean up waste piles. So there's still tailings and waste rock piled up just out in the open. And they can clean that up and cap it and contain it and get it out of, or they can just divert the water, storm water runoff away from it. And that helps as well. Just like our tailings pile here, it has become a Superfund site up there. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. After the Gold King mine spill, the EPA designated a Superfund site. It's basically 48 different mine sites. It's not like a big circle around an area. You talk about, in your book, the indigenous communities that were impacted by 
this spill and other spills and just acid mine waste in the rivers. And I was wondering if you could talk a little about how their perspectives differ from other communities. Closer you are to the mine, the more concentrated it is and the more toxic it is and the more harmful it is. And the further away you get, the, the less it is. But one of the things I noticed pretty quickly about it is that the further downstream you got, really the more impact there was to people. And the reason was is because of the way people see the river or perceive the river and their attachment to the river. So in Silverton, which was is about six miles downstream from the, the mine, I mean, they got the brunt of it, really, but it barely faced them because they don't really play in it. They don't swim in it. it they can't fish in it because there's no fish. They don't really raft in it and they don't get their drinking water out of it. And there's no agriculture because it's too high. And so they don't get irrigation out of it. Then you get down to Durango, 50 miles downstream, and, and you get a much stronger reaction, even though by that point, the river wasn't, it wasn't that harmful, but it looked scary. And they had to close the river for two weeks. And people there have a much, they have a stronger emotional connection to the river because it's sort of this green space that runs right through town. Thousands of people a day are down there on their stand-up paddle boards, their rafts, their kayaks, swimming in it partying by it if it was like if central park had a toxic waste spill in it but then you get further downstream and you get onto the navajo nation and there they have an even deeper connection to it because you know the river is sacred it's it holds places in ceremonies and religious life there's a stronger connection as far as sustenance goes because a lot of people are growing corn or growing other crops and it's ceremonial so a lot of this corn that they grow they use for, for ceremonial purposes there the impact was even greater i think even though the water was less concentrated, the chemicals were less concentrated in the water. How has all the research and writing of this book changed your perception of this region that you grew up in? I don't know if it changed my perception of the region, but I definitely learned a lot. I was surprised by the fact that in the 1880s and 1890s, there was such a strong sort of environmental movement, if you will, or cleanup movement. I was surprised by, really, it was, you know, the, a full-on capitalist enterprise by the 1880s. East Coast investors, people, investors from Hong Kong, investors from France, who were owned all these mines in the San Juan Mountains, and I had never really considered that. I'm just curious what you enjoy about writing and researching science and science relevant to our, our region. I love the detective work that goes with science writing and research. There's always this sort of detective stuff, like you're trying to uncover something or figure out why something happened like it did. And certainly with the science is great talking to the scientists, you know, especially when they're really passionate about their work and they're doing it because they really care. I enjoy that feeling of being able to communicate something super complicated in a simple way that's hopefully somewhat entertaining as well. Because there's a connection there, you know, you're being a connector between the scientists or the science and, and your readers. So that's fulfilling for sure. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming in and talking about your great book and for telling us all about what's going on in the San Juan Mountains. Thank you so much for having me. 
This show is made possible through a partnership with the Center for Colorado River Studies and Science Moab. You can listen to this interview with Jonathan Thompson again or any of our past shows at kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music for our show is by Jeremy Spalding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU.